I am thrilled with today's guest, Richard Haas. Uh, you know him from some many many places, but particularly from Morning Joe. He's one of my buddies there. He is the chairman emeritus of the uh, uh, the president. I'm sorry, president emeritus of the Council of Foreign Relations, which he ran for only about 20 years. Uh, one of the most important organizations in the world when it comes to foreign policy. He's written only 13 books, uh, 14 books. 13 of them are on uh, foreign policy. One is the latest one, which is out in paperback, a New York Times bestseller, The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens. He's won a Presidential Citizens Medal, the Secretary's Distinguished Service Award, uh, Tipperary International Peace Award, a gentleman and a scholar. Thank you for being here, sir. Good to be with you, Mr. Deutsch. So, obviously, we are living through, you've talked about it in your interviews, how when you started at the Council 20 years ago, how different the world, obviously the world changes every 20 years, but our threats today, when we look at what's happening in Russia and Ukraine, when we look at Iran, when we look at what's, what's happening in Israel and the Middle East, when we look at what's happening with China versus the halcyon peaceful days of 20 years ago, quite an extreme. It is quite an extreme. And then you had really two things. One was the United States enjoyed, if I can get wonky for a second, a degree of primacy. There was kind of us and the rest. And we had good relations with most of the other countries in the world. The power disparities were enormous, and there was tremendous optimism in the air. If you'll remember, with the, you know, 30 years ago was the end of the Cold War. The wall came down. You had things about the end of history, and uh, the only debates were over how optimistic to be. And I think 9-11 was one of the first uh, wake-up calls that even in a world of American advantage, we were still vulnerable. And then, yeah, over the last 20 years, things have, I would say, progressively, consistently gotten rougher. You've had the reemergence of geopolitical competition with Russia, with China. We've got war in Europe. Uh, you've got all sorts of problems with medium powers like Iran and, and, and North Korea. One has nuclear weapons. The other has moved closer to them. You've got global issues, uh, climate change. We just went through a pandemic where close to 20 million people died uh, worldwide. We now have got new technologies that people aren't quite sure what to do about, things like AI. And last but not least, I actually think some of the biggest changes are here at home. Coming out of the, the Cold War, you know, the debates, shall we say, were bounded. And now here we are uh, a year away from the next presidential election. And whatever else now the debates are, they are not bounded. And the choices are not between the 40-yard lines. The choices, at least one of the choices, potentially in an end zone. And that's a, that's a qualitatively different situation. I want to jump right into the Middle East. You guys were really great this morning on Morning Joe. And the question I have, and I'm a Jewish guy, so obviously I'm coming at it with just being a Jewish man. What I don't get about the media coverage from the beginning of this is that on October 6th, there was a ceasefire. Okay, and October seventh, we don't have we have to go through the, the the disgusting, grotesque slaughtering. And since then, Israel has been on trial, like no other group would ever be. Like the United Joe gave a great analogy the other day when he was talking about if Mexico invaded, and Israel are not you know perfectly innocent people, but it's a civilized society. Their enemy is hell bent on destroying them and destroying their own people in ways that we understand. So why has there been this, like no other time before, as I said, where the victim seems to be on the defense of explaining itself? Sympathy for Israel was there, not universally, but was there uh, to some extent on October 7th. 
But I would say, and I'm not arguing your point, it faded fast in most quarters. The United States, certainly the government, is one of the few bastions of, of continued support and sympathy for Israel. Uh, why is that? A couple of reasons. One is that Israel, as you would expect, did not take things passively. Israel is not a pacifist country. It pushed back. And in the process of pushing back, it did kill uh, civilians. So there were those who jumped all over that. But look, I think the basic point is there's double standards. Yeah. And there's yeah. hypocrisy. And I don't know about you. I mean, here we are living in New York. I didn't notice people occupying the Brooklyn Bridge or Grand Central Station to protest Russian violence yeah. against Ukraine, including the kidnapping of thousands and thousands of Ukrainian children, yeah. including the rape of Ukrainian women. I must have missed it, but I didn't see those protests. Yeah. I didn't see the protests against China's treatment of the Uyghurs. I didn't see the protests against uh, Mr. Assad, President Assad's murder of hundreds of thousands of people in Syria. I didn't see the protests around campuses about how, what the mullahs in Iran were doing to, uh, to women and others. And I can go on and on. And my point is simply there are double standards. Uh, the only thing that comes to mind then is, is anti-Semitism mm-hmm. to, to, uh, to explain it. But we, we, we are where we are. And I, you know, I, I've, Mentioned, I haven't done it in great as the same as detail, but yeah, where were the protests when it was about Ukrainian uh, Russians raping and destroying Ukrainians and Assad doing the same thing to Syrian people? And it just it goes on and on. And yet, because my theory is this is not as much about a pro Palestinian issue; it's an anti Israel, anti Jew issue. I think it's anti Israel because it's very hard to be pro Hamas. Can I just say that? <laughs> well, people about- can't separate. You talked about this this morning. You have to separate Palestine, Palestinians, and the Hamas. 100%. But also, I mean, look, Hamas has had the chance to run Gaza now for close to two decades. And why anybody thinks that is admirable or attractive in any way, it's a version of Iran. It's the Muslim Brotherhood. It's illiberal in every sense of the uh, uh, word. So that, that gets no attention. That gets no criticism. Again, there's people like me who think there should be ultimately a Palestinian state. Yes, there should. I agree also. I agree in the two-state solution. I, there's no other answer. And I think Israel should do it not as a favor to the Palestinians. I think Israel should do it as a favor to itself. Yeah. If Israel wants to be Jewish and democratic, it needs a Palestinian state. Palestinians, by the way, and I wonder how many of the people out there in the streets know this, have had opportunities, not perfect opportunities, but have had opportunities in their history to get a Palestinian state. They, they've tossed those away because it wasn't everything they want. Mm-hmm. So again, they are where they are. Their options have gotten worse with time. And again, this is not a defense of everything Israel's done. Israel's done some things that I think are truly Absolutely. Uh, unfortunate or, 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 or worse. But the, time, you know, the old Abba Ibn quote, the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. There's more than a little bit of truth to that. Yeah. Obviously, the discussion is everybody is, okay, what's next? Let's say they do take out a mosque. And what, what is it? Give me the best case scenario, the maybe a fantasy, of some alliance between the United States through Arab countries, Palestinians, Israelis, to set up a new regime there. Is, is that even plausible? It's a stretch, but it's plausible. I think, as you said, that's the best case, and it would, it would unfold as follows. The Israelis would militarily seriously degrade Hamas. Ultimately, the remnants of Hamas's uh, the 25,000, 30,000, 
terrorists, militants, whatever you want to call them, fighters, would whatever was left would leave. In the same way, at various times, the, the PLO left, say Lebanon, to go to Tunis, for example. They would go somewhere. I'm not sure where. There would then be some type of an international authority, uh, almost under the, I don't know if you remember when the UN was created, you had something called the Trusteeship Council. No, I don't. Uh, that's, that's, of, that's for wonky guy stuff. Okay, go ahead. Keep going. To midwife. <laughs> these entities that weren't ready to self-govern. So I can imagine, again, highly, highly, highly optimistic. I'm not, I'm not betting on this. I'm betting against it. It could be international. It could be Arab League. It could, it could be a subset of the Arab League. It could be the Palestinian Authority. You would have some group or groups that would provide, the Israelis would hand over governance to them, and they would essentially try to bring about this Palestinian self-governing responsible entity in Gaza. That is the wildly optimistic scenario. I, for one, am skeptical on lots of levels, but but you asked me to be optimistic, so there you have it. So give me the pessimistic take on what happens. Well, there's a whole menu of possibilities. The most pessimistic is the war widens. And as bad as things are, they get worse. Hezbollah comes into the war. Hezbollah has far, far more firepower than, than, than Hamas possibly Iran and the United States uh, end up in some kind of conflict because Iranian proxies of all, and Iran have already been targeting U.S. troops in Syria and uh, Iraq. So that would be the nightmare. It seems to me that you have a, a much wider region war. You have massive protests or violence in the West Bank. So I, you know, I, I can get really negative. Uh, I think in between, and perhaps the most likely scenario between the really optimistic and the really negative is the Israelis go into uh, Gaza as they are. Uh, they, there's a ground component, there's air component, it continues. I don't think what they do is decisive, that they, they hurt Hamas, but it, uh, Hamas, you know, remnants, large elements of it survive. International outcry really grows loud. And there's a growing pressure on Israel and the United States for a ceasefire. My guess is there'll be uh, pauses before permanent ceasefires. You'll have temporary humanitarian pauses for hostages and prisoners to be swapped, for aid to, to get in. But this then becomes a kind of permanent or open-ended struggle between Israel and Hamas. Not that different than what existed before October 7th, except, one, you have the memory of October 7th, and two, it's hotter, where it was periodic violence between Israelis and, uh, and, the, and Hamas. It basically continues at a more intense, sustained rate. What's scary about this is the hovering, whatever the new name for axis of evil is, when you see where, how all of a sudden Russia and China and North Korea and Iran uh, are like, hey, kind of well, our interests kind of are lining up here. And the United States is in a kind of field of one against some truly, truly frightening I don't, want to, I don't want to call China an enemy, but adversaries. I think China, though, and Russia are on very different pages. Russia doesn't mind when there's violence in the Middle East because two things. One is it distracts people's attention from Ukraine, and the other is energy prices go up, and that's good for Russia. China, however, is not wild about that. China's economy's got all sorts of problems. China's a massive importer of oil. It, it's Iran's biggest customer. So China may have a slightly different view of uh instability in the Middle East than, uh, than, than, than Russia does. North Korea is pretty far afield. But look, I think Iran is the big question mark here. What do the Iranians decide is in their self-interest? But they're, you know, that's the common thread. They're the ones behind Hamas. They're the ones behind Hezbollah. They're active in Syria. 
obviously in, in, in Lebanon. So the real question is, uh, what can we do to try to dissuade Iran from playing a truly outrageous, uh, destabilizing role here? And the answer is we don't have that many cards. We've already sanctioned them uh, considerably, but we could increase sanctions. Uh, obviously, there's a possibility of military exchanges, but I don't know anybody who, uh, who likes that. As I said, we've got U.S. forces in the region who are potentially uh, vulnerable. So I, it's one of the many reasons, coming back to where we began, that I want to uh, discourage this war from continuing. I want to discourage Israel from going in big and staying big in Gaza, because I think that raises the probability or possibility we'll see a wider war. I want to talk to you about a new, really cool, super healthy, super delicious meal service called Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you get fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. You get two-minute meals, fuel up fast with factors, restaurant-quality meals that are ready to eat and heat whenever you are, pancakes, smoothies, uh, no prep, no mess meals. Factors meals are ready to heat and eat, so there's no prep and cooking or cleanup needed. It's flexible for your schedule. Um, Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for a fast premium option with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. So stop doing takeout. These are meals that are completely put together for you. All you got to do is heat them up. They'll be delivered. Head to factormeals.com slash Donnie50 and use code Donnie50 to get 50% off. That's code Donnie50 at factormeals.com slash Donnie50 to get 50% off. Mine are coming to me next week. I can't wait to try them. I hear great things about them. But Factor, this is good stuff. It tastes great. It's easy to use. It's healthy. I really, really, I really endorse it. Factor, go get them. So, it's interesting. You talked about Iran. What a little inside baseball when we are dealing with an adversary like that, and we talk about diplomatic relations. Like, who's talking to who? I'm like, how much communication goes on between a country like Iran and us, and who's doing it? Very little. Uh, every once in a while, in the old days, we would have certain uh, meetings, say with our foreign ministers. That seems, if my memory serves me right, that's pretty much stopped. Most of it's through third parties. Uh, you know, Qatar or Qatar, if you prefer, is one of the countries, uh, the UAE. So usually now I would think we mostly work through third parties, but we have had a special envoy and there's been some limited, limited uh, diplomacy. But I would just make a larger point. The problems between the United States and Iran are not a result of a lack of diplomatic contacts. The lack of diplomatic contacts is because of the fundamental differences between the United States and Iran. I want to go back to one other point earlier about you had such a great point about, you know, where are all the protests for Ukrainian people and Syrian people? Where were the protests for the Palestinians, the way they've been treated in Jordan and Syria and Lebanon? I find that where were all those people raising their hands at that point? Look, the, the history of the Palestinians is a, a frustrating one. And it's one of the reasons, by the way that you don't see the Jordanians or the Egyptians opening or putting out the welcome mat. In 1970, uh, you had the whole Palestinian movement against the Hashemite monarchy in Jordan. People remember that. 
there's uh, in Egypt. Egypt was the administrator of Gaza before 1967. Since then, Gaza is often a source of instability in Egypt. The groups like Hamas are essentially offshoots of the Muslim Brotherhood. And Egypt had its fill with, uh, with the Muslim Brotherhood after the Arab Spring. So it is wildly uh, uh, destabilizing. So there, there's not a lot of love loss. People forget one other thing, Donnie. And when Saddam Hussein invaded uh, and occupied Kuwait in the summer of 1990, who was cheering him on when he was threatening not just Kuwait, but Saudi Arabia? It was the Palestinians. So around the Arab world, they're not necessarily everybody's favorite. Yeah. Let's shift gears a little bit domestically. You've been very outspoken about, you actually talked about this this morning, about how the war looks at us with Donald Trump as a past president and potential future president, and how that really affects our standing in the world, the way, the way other foreign powers look at us. Absolutely. I'll agree with myself. Uh, <laughs> one of the uh, attributes of a major power, at least a successful one, is a kind of consistency, reliability, dependability, choose whatever word. So your friends know they can count on you. Your assurances mean something. And your enemies know that when you say certain things, it's not an empty threat. You're not bluffing. It's real. And I would say simply uh, for a long time, for most of the post-World War II history of the United States, we could do that with real credibility. And the reason is, or was, that the differences between Republicans or Democrats or between Republican candidates or Democratic candidates for president when it came to these basic issues was pretty small. Uh, no one was questioning, yeah. say, the U.S. commitment to NATO in fundamental ways and so forth. I think what's different now is what's up for grabs is far, far greater, uh, or, or the uncertainty factor has really grown. So when, when our friends look at us, they're not sure anymore what's the norm and what's the aberration. Does Joe Biden represent the norm and not Donald Trump was a four-year aberration? Or is Donald Trump the new norm for America and Joe Biden is a four-year throwback? But now we're going to go back to Trumpism. So our friends around the world look at us and they're not quite sure anymore who we are and what they can count on. China. What's the possibility of China making an offensive move with Taiwan? Where I mean, obviously we hear about that. That's talked about. Is that ever a real possibility? Uh, ultimately, yes. Uh, I don't think it's on the near-term agenda. I think China is somewhat sobered by the Russian experience in, in Ukraine. It shows the potential for sanctions. It shows how mil uh, wars can be uncertain uh, phenomena. Uh, militaries may not perform well. China's military hasn't fought a war since the 1970s, and that didn't go so well when they took on uh, Vietnam. United States is pretty powerful partners in Asia, beginning with Japan, but also South Korea, Australia, obviously Taiwan itself. So no, I don't think uh, China's on the edge of anything. They want to see what happens in the elections in Taiwan in a few months. They want to see what happens here in November, a year from now. But at some point, possibly Xi Jinping, when he looks at himself, you know, if Vladimir Putin romanticized his role in Russian history, he was going to be Peter the Great or something. I think when Xi Jinping looks in America, his sense of legacy is not going to be economic performance. Uh, his predecessor got Hong Kong back. So the one big thing sitting out there is, is obviously Taiwan. Now, it doesn't mean he's going to launch a war, and it's our goal. It ought to be our foreign policy aim to discourage him or any of his successors, whenever they come to power, from thinking a war against Taiwan is a, is a smart bet. It's a smart uh, gamble. But that's up to us. We have got to 
essentially indicate enough of a commitment to Taiwan and the ability to back it up that Xi Jinping or any of his successors won't be tempted to do something. I think right now that's, a, that's, that's kind of in doubt. Uh, so I, but no, I don't think anything's imminent, but I'm not going to sit here and say I'm comfortable. We have, a, we have lots we need to do to make the deterrence as robust as it needs to be. A little domestic uh, chat. I believe that if the election was today, Donald Trump would win. I, I say that with a heavy, heavy, heavy heart. Why is what I mean, Biden is down 11 points in the last month, which is stunning. When you look at uh, the job he's done, he's done a really good job, no matter how you score. I mean, you, whether you look at the economy, whether you look at Ukraine, whether you look at a, a traditionally very pro-American stance on Israel, yet, is it simply his age or is it simply that People just are, his attitude is like, fuck it. I want a lunatic in there. I, I can't, I can't reason it. I can't reason it out. Well, there's two things. One is Trump's base is what economists call inelastic. Support for him is unconditional. So he's going to have that base. Joe Biden doesn't have quite as a loyal or unconditional uh, a base. And yeah, um, look, you could argue that the economy is in better shape than people thought. I think the handling of Ukraine has been good. I think the handling of Israel's mostly been been good since this war has began, but it doesn't translate. So yeah, I think a lot of it is age. I think uh, to some extent, it's speaking ability. It's uh, maybe some of the scandals with the, with the sun. The border issue, I think is really corrosive. I think the Democrats and the administration have really hurt themselves uh, there. But a lot of this is just visceral. This is like, this gets more into your world than mine. Why Trump connects with more Americans, despite the reality of what he did or what the likelihood of what he would do, and Biden does not. There, I don't know if it's chemical or. I'll give or you the that. answer. I'll give you the answer. Trump's whole essence is fuck you, and there is a big part of this country that wants to tell everybody else to go fuck themselves. And it's. I mean, you want to break it down to its most raw thing. That I think there is enough people unhappy in their own lives, unhappy with the status quo, that when somebody comes in and says, "I'm going to give the middle finger to everything," even if it's institutions that make sense for you, like the FBI or the internet, like, and I think that resonates in, to use your word, in a very visceral level. Look, I uh, I don't disagree uh, with that. I that's look, that's that's the essence of populism. At the end of the day, whatever else Donald Trump is, he's a he's a populist. Unlike Joe Biden, at the end of the day, he's a man of the establishment. Joe Biden believes in the system, believes in the process, believes in working across party lines. Donald Trump believes in none of those things. He is an outsider, even when he's an insider. And you're right. There's a big chunk of Americans who feel this things are not working for them. When they look towards the future, they're pessimistic. And when people are pessimistic about their state, in life, and they're even more pessimistic about their future, they are willing to take risks. They are willing to turn to outsiders who say, I'll throw the bums out. I will turn things around. So yes, it's, you know, it's what happens when government is not seen as delivering. And Donnie, think about the last 20, 25 years. It's where we began the conversation. 2007, eight economic crisis, the more recent inflation, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the pandemic, Afghanistan, whatever. You add these things up, uh, and you say, hey, what is the country, what has the government done for me? I know what it's done to me, but what has it done for me? And I think, yes, that fuels Donald Trump, that people see him as an outsider who's somehow not beholden to all these elites who have benefited while they have paid a price. So, yeah, I think you're onto something there. 
Let's talk about the book, uh, The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens. It's in paperback now. Uh, you basically break the book down to like 10 obligations. Each chapter is on a, a different one than about people being more civic-minded. One of them, which is so right for the times, reject violence, comes off a stat that I just read recently that 21% of this country thinks that political that violence is okay for political means. That's one in five people. It's one in five people. It's one of those statistics that stuns me. It also scares me because if people do get set on political violence, the means are there. Given gun ownership, uh, we've got more than one gun per capita uh, out there, just given the statistic. But yeah, political violence is increasingly in our, in our bloodstream. You saw the threats made to people over the speakership uh, in the uh, House. We see a lot of uh, judges and people involved in legal processes are being threatened. Mitt Romney talked about it at, uh, at various times, January 6th. We don't need to, uh, to spend a lot of time talking about that. So, yeah, uh, look, it's one, of the, it's one of the reasons I'm not saying but, you know, You mentioned when you introduced me, uh, one of the things I've done is spend time in Northern Ireland. I was the U.S. envoy for three years after George Mitchell. I then went back for six months when the parties of Northern Ireland needed an international mediator. Northern Ireland was a society that for three decades was ravaged by violence, called the Troubles. You know, going to the grocery store became a heroic act. I can't sit here or stand here and confidently tell you it cannot happen here. Actually, it could happen here. And we see elements of it. And so, yeah, if people are not frightened. Um, they're not paying attention. They should, take, they should take the threat of political violence seriously. And what we need are people in public life who delegitimize it. And that means not just politicians. Where are the people who preach every Sunday or Saturday or Friday? Why aren't they standing up at the pulpit and saying, hey, whatever your difference is, there is no place in this country for political violence. We do not need terrorism that is, that is homegrown. We need our clergy to do that. We need our teachers to do that. We need parents to do that. So, yeah, we need our politicians to, to be role models, but we can't depend on them. Others need to step up as well. You, it's like each chapter in the book was like written for today. You talk about being informed, and we have this world of social media now where we don't know what facts are. You talk about step in a compromise where people are so dug in in tribalism. Talk to me about those two things in terms of just – kind of actionable things that, that that make them not idealistic, but workable. Yeah, social media is just that. I always tell people it's called social media. It's not called serious media. It's not called That's factual great. media. That's great. So don't use it for news. Uh, you want to use it for Instagram or talking to your buddies, fine. But look, if you had a serious uh, illness and you went to a doctor and he gave you this or that diagnosis, you get a second opinion. So why don't people get second opinions? on facts, on news. There are certain places that actually fact check, that authenticate. One of the things I like in certain schools now, we see it in New Jersey, that they're teaching kids in school what's called information literacy. How do you navigate this swamp called the internet? Where do you go for facts? How do you know a fact when you see one? How do you, how do you tell the difference between a fact and an opinion? Every single young person in America ought to become literate when it comes to, to information. Not, not what to think, not how to think, but how to be a critical consumer. That's something we can and should teach. I don't think that's an, an, an impossib impossibility. And you asked me about another obligation, and I forget which one it was. I about comprom compromise. Yeah, look, uh, being open to compromise, that's how things get done in a, in a democracy. You, you know, it doesn't mean you always compromise, 
And I think it's a legitimate conversation when you stand fast, when, when principle, but you've always got to ask yourself, compared to what? Is it better to get half a loaf, not than a full loaf, in most cases, the choice is between half a loaf and nothing. Isn't that, wouldn't you be better off? Look, I get it. The problem is in our politics, you're rewarded for purity, and social media does that, the way we fund our politics, and, and, and so forth. But that's up to us. Uh, every once in a while, I feel we get the government we deserve rather than the one we need. So if we're not going to vote for people or against people, depending upon whether they put the country before party or themselves, then, then it's on us. Richard, final question. I read an interview with you recently where somebody said, are you pessimistic or optimistic? And you said, I'm optimistic. So make me feel good. I'm optimistic in the sense that nothing's inevitable. That, you know, I've now worked for four presidents. Uh, I've been there enough where you see what good people working through tough problems or challenges can, can do and then come out in, in good places. And if you read American history, uh, you look at the degree this country has changed and evolved. Uh, things we take for granted now, 50 year, years ago, were, were un, unimaginable. You look at the improvement, and even though there's been some setbacks recently about how long people are living, how wealthy they are, and so forth, this country is amazing. So I think that's all built uh, in. But so the good news is uh, you know, decline and the rest is not inevitable. The bad news is future success is not inevitable either. So I feel a sense of, of possibility. And the reason I wrote this book the reason I do things like this is I wanted to kick off a conversation and I want people not to feel immobilized or defeatist. I want them to feel possible possibility, but they've got to take ownership. I want them to get off their butts. I want people to get informed, to get involved. Citizens actually have a lot of power in, in this society. So my, my, my response is don't wait for the politicians to save us. We've got to get involved. And by the way, think about the last few presidential elections. A tiny, tiny sliver of the American people voting flips things one way or the other. The House right now, for better or worse, would be Democratic if a few districts in New York had gone different. Uh, different people would have been president if 100,000 people distributed in three states had, had voted differently or had come out and voted. This is a country of 330 million people. So tiny changes in political behavior can have outsized uh, outcomes. So that's why I'm optimistic. I think it's possible. If there was ever a book right for the Times, it's the New York Times bestseller now out in paperback, The Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens. Richard Haas, it's a privilege to sit with you on Morning Joe, and it's a privilege for you to take the time and be with me today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Donnie.